Welcome to Identity Talk, a show dedicated to unearthing stories about compelling people, doing compelling things, and making compelling discoveries about who they are. I'm Jana Lopez, your hostess. Each episode of Identity Talk, you'll discover illuminating conversations with guests from all walks of life. My life's mission as a book coach, writing guide, and retreat leader is to guide people like you towards clarity and connection through writing. I blend experience and intuition to take your writing to unimaginable results in your creativity and productivity. I offer private and small group retreats in stunning Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm the published author of the acclaimed book, Me, My Selfie, and I. If it's time to unearth your own stories, write that book and need clarity, guidance, or support, visit JanaLopez.com. And now, let the unearthing of stories begin on Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Well, good afternoon. It's a beautiful, gorgeous, sunny day with big puffy clouds here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm your hostess of the podcast Identity Talk. And on this show, I interview people from all walks of life who have done interesting things, making compelling discoveries about compelling ideas. And many of them are making big, bold moves in their own lives just because they feel like there's a need and a place for them to connect at a deeper level and make some some large strides in who they are. So today, my guest is David Richman, and he had heard my podcast and was like, hey, Jana and I need to talk. And I was, okay, let's talk. So I was very grateful. David Richman has come out with a book recently at the end of last year called Cycle of lives. And this is a very interesting book, which we're going to talk more about. And before I get into the specifics of the book, David's also a public speaker, uh, an athlete who does these unbelievable triathlons and Ironman, (laughs) which I want to talk about Ironman events and um, philanthropist. So thanks for being here, David. I'm, I'm grateful to spend my day and afternoon with you. Thank you. Me too, Jan. I'm looking forward to talking to you. So yeah, that's uh, those, everybody laughs when they say, oh, you do those diamonds, man, you must be crazy. It's like, well, whatever, you know. <laughs> well, we can start there. Let's just, let's just plunge in. I mean, we have a lot to talk about, but that was mm-hmm. one thing that when your information was sent that did raise an eyebrow is because I think people are always curious about these large scale human endurance type of things where they put their bodies and their minds to the test and triathlons are one of those things that I always thought about when could I do it? Would I do it? And then the thing that always gets me is the swimming. <laughs> if it was a triathlon to maybe walk and, you know, I could try to run, but the swimming would do me in. <laughs> yep. Yeah. The swimming never bothered me. I love being in the water. I'm a cancer and, and, uh, you know, I guess, um, just growing up in Southern California, just the water is, 
just, I could spend more time in the water than out of the water as a kid and often did and got me into a lot of trouble, but the swimming is no problem for me. What, what um, drew me to endurance athletics, Jenna, was this, and it wasn't um, a conscious thing. I didn't discover it till later. I just wanted to, I just was drawn to, to being active because I'd never been active really as an adult. I was an overweight smoker, you know, never really did anything at all. And I had like a number of different things happen at one point in my life that just gave me the motivation, the urgency to say, I got to start like changing my life and doing things on purpose rather than not. And I thought, well, why don't I try to push myself athletically? Cause I never had. And as a smoker, you, you, you know, what was I going to do? I ran like two minutes and I could right. really do that, you know? And then once I ran two minutes and I ran five minutes and I ran 10 minutes and then I was just like, well, okay, maybe I can run a mile. Maybe I can do this. And it just eventually within like an eight or 10 month period, I went from, you know, being a smoker to doing an Ironman and an Ironman. If, if, if your listeners don't know, it's, it's a 2.4 mile swim. Then you get off and you, you do 112 miles on the bike. Oh, it's, it's a full marathon, 26.2 okay. miles. So you, okay. you run a full marathon after, after you do the bike <laughs> and the swim. So it, it's like a 14, you know, between a 12 and let's say a 14 hour deal for me. So that's a long time. I never thought I could do anything like that. And, um, you know, I guess it, it, it's more mental. I do it for the mental and, um, you know, probably meditative qualities than for anything else, but that's, that's what drew me to it. Um, and, and keeps me doing endurance athletics. Cause it's not just good for the, for the body. It really is good for the mind. At least for me, it is, it, it, it keeps me focused. It keeps me healthy. It lets me solve problems. You know, when I'm out on the bike or out on a long run, I get to contemplate, find a quiet place in my brain. So it's, it's really been a, a real blessing for me to, to have uh, discovered endurance athletics. I can relate to the meditative part, not so much on running a marathon or uh, being on a bike or even swimming, but I did find that even just in walking. And I also related to what you said by just starting out five minutes or a mile and then two miles. And I started walking during the pandemic and uh, it was the one thing I could do to be safe, right? And I knew I could be outside. Right. I didn't have to be isolated, but it did start with just a mile or two. And then after within five, six months, I was walking up to 10 miles a day. And it wow. wasn't about the how many miles or how many hours or whatever it was. It was how deeply I connected to myself during that time in ways that I never mm -hmm. had. It was like a meditative space for me where thoughts and creativity or imagination percolated in a natural free state, I think. Yeah, and we don't often give ourselves the opportunity to do that, right? Everybody has busyitis, right? Everybody's busier than the next person and they're busier than they think they can handle it. And so when you take a break, you go, you watch a movie, you binge watch a show, you, you, you do a puzzle, you read a book, you do something to just stop being busy. But that something is just filler. How often do you get to meditate? And for me, it takes me a while. Like it takes me a good half hour, 40 minutes to kind of unwind my brain and get into the point when I can be contemplative. And so even if I took, you know, a half hour break and, and walked around the 
the backyard or walked around the block or something, I still wouldn't do it for me. I, I need hours and hours. And then like what you just said, um, once I'm there for two hours, I, I, I feel freer after and more refreshed after six hours than I did after two. Now, eventually you get tired, but uh, you know, I've done 25 hour runs and, and, and 20, you know, I, I've, I've done crazy athletic things, but I, I'm not uh, mentally exhausted. I'm mentally refreshed. I might be physically exhausted, but they're, they're very, they're, they're really a way to get, like you said, get in touch with yourself and try to figure things out. And thinking about that and looking at that. So doing a 25 hour day or you know, all these hours of physical endurance, how do you train your mind to reconcile that when your body's a certain point and it's tired, like to keep going? And how do you condition yourself to, to, to envision that extra mile to run that extra hour? I know that so much of endurance athletics is all mind space. I, I don't know if you saw that movie free solo with Alex Honnold, I who have. he scaled uh, mm -hmm. Half Dome or no, El Capitan. El Capitan. Um, right. The whole thing for him was his mind. It was brilliant mm -hmm. to watch that movie because every single aspect of it, confidence and uh, all the moves, everything was completely 100% in his mind. Yeah, now you have to have the physical ability to be able to do something like that, right? You can't just... You can't just never have run and never been on a bike and then say, well, I'm going to put my mind to the test and go do an Ironman. It just, it doesn't work that right. So you have to have some amount of physical training and some amount of ability to do that. But once you have kind of like a base layer of ability, which almost anybody could develop rather quickly, then it is, you're right, only a, a, a factor of where your mind is and what you can accomplish. And um, everybody has their own process, Jana, for figuring that out. For me, what I was able to do was to wrap my brain around this concept of when it got tough or when it was uh, uh, unfamiliar to me and I didn't know if I could make it through to the next level or the next mile or the next whatever i just convinced myself that every time i pushed myself further than i pushed myself before i would discover something new about myself or something new about life or something new about what i was capable of and that's very alluring because i'm, I'm an optimistic person and a forward-thinking person and 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 if i if i stop because i go oh, that's all i got then I don't know that I got room to grow. And I always think I got room to grow. So I'm always going to try to do more and push myself further, which is really a thing of your mind. And I still don't know after 20 plus years of doing these endurance athletic events, kind of what the maximum amount that I could do is it's the maximum amount that I want to choose to do. I could do. I just don't, I don't, I haven't hit that. I haven't hit that maximum yet. I mean, could I, could I run around the world? Why not? I mean, if I wanted to, could I figure out a way to, no, nah, I might not be able to, uh, you know, financially or, you know, I, I might like goals might not be aligned enough to give me the time to do it.
But if you said, if anybody said, you know, I'm going to get myself to a point where I'm going to run, you know, 30 miles every day until I run around the world, I'm sure people could do it. A couple of people have that I know. So I, I don't know that we have limits. It's just the limits we put on ourselves. And I love the idea that by physically, that's the manifestation of what you're talking about, right? Just whatever it is that you're doing, but that the mental part of it is that by pushing yourself, you could learn something new that you don't yet know. That's a beautiful thought. I think that too, um, probably not to the degree or exactly the same way that you do, but that is an aspiration for me because I do think there is always room to grow. And that was one of my questions you had talked about, um, and some of the stuff that you had sent me was this bike ride that you did uh, across the country, 5,000 miles. And I had a friend who also did that bike mm -hmm. ride. And it was interesting to hear some of the things he saw and heard and learned and the surprising encounters that he had. So what in your mind, when you think back to that time, were some of the things that you saw and heard and discovered along the way. Uh, he, he, he had said that, that just being on a bike completely to, to see things completely changed his perspective on humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it definitely did with me too. Um, I would say that I was pretty shocked at people's willingness to talk to a stranger and also on the charitable nature of people um, where you wouldn't expect that they would be charitable. So um, I did this bike ride as a way to connect the stories of the 15 people that eventually made the book that had encountered cancer. So uh, not just had cancer, but had a loved one die or had a loved one survive, but they, they were either a loved one, a caregiver, a professional, a doctor, um, uh, you know, whomever, just a wide range of people. And I had spoke to them for a couple of years about the emotional side of their cancer journey in relation to the traumas that had happened in their lives previously. Traumas such as abandonment or abuse or um, uh, making bad decisions or being dealt a bad hand in life or whatever, right? And how did those traumas affect their emotional journey with cancer? Then to connect the stories, I said, what better way to connect them than to get on my bike? So I didn't have a lot of time. I took only 45 days to put in 4,700 miles and I took four days off. So uh, along okay, the way, you can do the math, everybody. That's over a hundred miles a day. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It was 120 <laughs> miles a day and on a on a bike that had, you know, the bags, the panniers, the bags on the side, so I could carry stuff. I did have some support most days, but I was biking by myself, and maybe about a third of the days I was I was solo, without any support. So I'm I'm with a heavy bike, full of gear most days. Um, it was it was hot. I did during during pretty hot time of the year, um, and especially in the Southwest. I, I think the first nine or ten days, the high was never below a hundred degrees. So it was hot, windy, brutal. And I had to put in like a hundred, 120, 150 miles a day because it was all scheduled. I was meeting people along the way. I was stopping at cancer centers, stopping at hospitals, whatever. So I didn't have a lot of meandering time, but I did have a lot of contemplative time because whether you're biking purposely for 12 hours or you're biking kind of carefree for 12 hours it's still 12 hours on the bike right 
but I did run into just tons of people. Most days I ran into many, many people who I got to uh, uh, answer the question, what the heck are you doing? Or I got to offer up, hey, this is what I'm doing. And it really made me connect with a lot of people. I have a lot of great memories from people offering help and support and prayer and donations and all of that just just because they just were impressed that somebody was doing this thing and they wanted to be a part of it and i was really really blown over by that response and um at the same time jan i also realized that i had formed this little bubble of a world in which i wanted to talk to people about this emotional journey with cancer right and i knew that these people had had a difficult time with that aspect of the cancer, the cancer journey was the, the talking about the emotional side of it. So when I got out of that bubble of just the people I'd been speaking to, and I got to get reinforced to me every day, all day, that everybody had a problem with this. Everybody had had an encounter with cancer, either themselves or a family member, a friend or a loved one. And they all had the same response. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't, I didn't know how to process the emotional side of it. I didn't know how deep I could go with somebody. I didn't know. I, I didn't want to make them feel guilty. I didn't want to make them feel bad. Like I, nobody felt equipped. And so what I found taking this bike ride, long answer, Jana, but what I found taking this bike ride is that people are one, unbelievably charitable and compassionate. And two, we all have this thing in common that we are not equipped to deal with the language of trauma. Look what's happening with the pandemic, right? People don't know how to deal with it, right? They yeah. Just- and I think people don't even really understand grief in general. And I use that word. Grief means a lot of things to me. My own book, me, myself, and I, I write about the loss of identity and the grief associated with it and what comes with grief and how to name it. Uh, one of the things my belief is about this last year in relation to what you're discussing is that it's unnamed. I think people go through these traumas or these experiences where even if we have a universal set of circumstances, and even if we might have some universal reactions and emotions to them, the individual responses and way of processing grief is, is, fascinating to me because I don't think a lot of people know what it is, don't know how to name it, don't know how to deal with it. And even if there are cancer survivors, because I have talked to a lot of people who have survived, they are still in grief because of the fear that they live with. They could have it again, their innocence about their immortality, Mm -hmm. all those things gets taken away. And then they suddenly have to look through life as with a new lens. Mm -hmm. Oh, no question. You're absolutely right. And, um, and, and one of the hardest things to do is I, I can kind of wrap my brain around the idea that, that it, it takes a special amount of, of self-reflection, contemplation, maybe even professional help to be able to understand your own grief, right? I can wrap my brain around that, that concept, but what is a, like a kind of a scary, lonely, places like how do I then talk to people about it even people that care about me and love me because there's so much more than just the grief there is the emotional side of you know some things I just mentioned like I don't want to bring people down I don't want to I don't want to show weakness because then 
they might think they can't count on me. Um, I don't want to uh, 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 invade somebody's private space. I, you know, I don't want to say something stupid. There's a million things that could happen that would, that cause people to, even if they have processed their grief to somewhat, it does cause people to isolate. And, you know, um, uh, it, that's the hard thing. Like, how can I engage in a conversation with Jana, who's a good friend of mine, right? Uh, over something that's really, really hard to really understand. Like, I don't want to push you. I don't want to pull you. Right. I, I, I want to create a safe space, but I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to intrude. I mean, there's a lot of, there's so much around that. And I think in the end, Jana, we're all looking to form deeper, more meaningful heart-centered connections with the people that we care about and the people that are in our lives. But I don't think we're often equipped to do it, especially around grief and trauma. So that's, that's what I set out to do with the book. And it's interesting when you said that, one of the things that I thought about is how to have these real deep, meaningful conversations, even if we don't understand when socially, I think we're surrounded by stuff that's bullshit, you know, forgive mm -hmm. the French, but there's memes and little fake smiley hearts and things, you know, we, we are conditioned to believe that everything is a hashtag problem solvable away with some quick right. fix, some quick and solution. And there's this illusion that if we don't measure up or if we don't like have this, uh, even if you're having a bad day, right? You go to the grocery store and somebody says, how are you? And if you really having a bad day, do they really want to know you're having a bad day? Right. <laughs> like, so there's right. this inherent social lack of allow allowance, I think, for the, the, the breadth and scope of the authentic emotions that we go through. And especially mostly everybody has stuff they're going through. We've lost people. We've loved people. We've had people die. We have illness. We have job loss. We have divorce. We have cancer, right? There's these things yes. that people have. Yeah. So to have these meaningful conversations, one of the things I wondered about is I know the impetus for the book and this ride was because you had lost your own sister to brain cancer. Mm -hmm. So how much time did you have to have conversations with her from the time that you knew she was diagnosed until the time that she passed away? And now that you know what you know, would your conversation with her been have been different? Yeah, great, great question, Jana. So I, I think they might have been a little bit more purposeful, but I'm I, I actually don't have a heavy heart about those things because we did talk way more than we would normally talk. And we did talk about a lot of pretty heavy and deep and meaningful things. So I think if there's any silver lining to the fact that you have to deal with the inevitability of another's death, if there is a little silver lining as to your first question, how much time do you have? It does provide you, can provide you with some time. That doesn't necessarily give you the ability to navigate the waters you need to navigate, but it does at least give you those waters. So uh, for her and I, it was maybe about four years. Um, she had uh, been a job, you know, she life and was also obviously dealing with 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 the medical side of this and so uh we didn't talk every day we probably talked every week but we talked you know pretty 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 regularly about some pretty heavy things and it wasn't always had but it was and it gave us an, an opportunity to uh be 
heard from the other, you know, develop another sense of compassion. I certainly felt for the loss that she was going to have and the regret that she felt about not being able to be there for her kids and her husband and those kind of things. So we were able to talk about a lot of deep things. I don't know that we resolved many things, but at least we were able to connect at a deeper level. And um, I am really grateful that we had the opportunity to do that. Now, if everything else was the same, but I was a little smarter like I am now about being intentional with those talks, we probably would have gone just a bit deeper, but uh, I feel like I, f- I feel like especially at the time we were both fortunate enough to naturally, and I think siblings can do this to naturally kind of like, like just lean back on your joint experiences and your kind of uniqueness to each other because we were only a year and a half apart. So, you know, our experience was very similar growing up, and um, so we were able to kind of tap into our ability to communicate on a much easier level than I think some people can, you know, um, uh, because of that commonality. So I, I wouldn't go back and change a lot. I might, like I said, I might be a little bit more intentional, but um, we did have a few years to do that. And let, let me just uh, expand on that just for one, for one second, is that on a few of the stories in the book, people had done that where they, they knew that there was an end in sight. And although it was tragic, and although it was unbelievably traumatic and uh, you know evocative and just just really heart wrenching, at times it did provide people the ability to resolve everything they could or needed to resolve. And sometimes that is a beautiful thing. It, it wrapped up in a in a you know a, a real shit storm, right? Right. But it's a beautiful part of it. And I'll remember this one story, Bobby, and he lost the love of his life shortly after meeting her. They got married, but but, but shortly after they met, um, she developed brain can- uh, breast cancer. Um, uh, they, they beat it. Uh, they got married. It came back right before their marriage. Um, and it eventually killed her within a couple of years, maybe even a little bit sooner than that. But during that time, they were able to resolve every single thing they could possibly have resolved, right? Everything, they talked everything A to Z and everything in between. And when Brandy died, although it wasn't easy and although it wasn't great, he had processed his grief, a good portion of it, and had moved on many steps later. And he really hated that people were sympathizing with him because he couldn't understand their empathy, but he didn't want puppy dog eyes. He's long past that. He wanted looking at the future and he wanted to relive the strength that she gave him, not the loss, you know? And so, yeah, that's incredible. Um, and, and when you, when you say that, I know that kind of honesty and depth and fierce vulnerability for lack of a better term, I don't have a word for it is, probably one of the most, uh, and these words don't even, they just fall so short. Courageous is not the right word, but an example is I have a friend who has ALS and he's actually lived a long time considering the diagnosis. I think he's, he's had it four or five years, but things are starting to definitely shift and become noticeable. Mm -hmm. And we have another friend, Kevin, who has been so present and so there and so loving 
to be with him. And he, he care, he did some caretaking for him for a couple of weeks. Um, and I really marveled at Kevin's willingness to be that fierce in his courage to, to be with somebody who is going through that extent of reconciling their own life. And it's not every moment heavy, you know, they had laughs and they have shared love and they have a lot of other things, but in the context of it, to be willing to be that present, that fiercely courageous, to be so open to be with somebody at the end of their life, knowing it's the end of their life, cleaning up that side of the fence or whatever it is you want to call it to be where there's nothing left necessarily. There's memories you're never going to get to share with that person, but to have that kind of um, clarity with each other, I think is a beautiful thing. And, and, um, you had said something about staying in touch with some of these people. Are you in touch with Bobby still? Oh uh, yeah, we are. We're definitely in touch. And his story is, is wonderful because, um, although it, it it's based on just a, just a, a tragedy that I can't I, identify with, right. Imagine that you were unlovable and unable to love because you just weren't in tune with your best self. And then along comes somebody that makes you that and gives you that. And then um, you lose that person. Can you imagine how difficult it is to go on in life? But he, out of that experience, and even Brandy, before she died, she said, you know, I'm really going to hate the next woman that you fall in love with because you're your best self now. (laughs) She's going to get to enjoy the, the Bobby that I put so much work into. And he did, he, he reconnected with somebody from his past. They, um, they have a wonderful marriage. They've, they've been married now for, I, I think going on about 10 years and they, they do an event every year and Brandy's honored to raise money for the, uh, you know, American cancer society. And th- he's very open about this. And, and he said something to me that is so shockingly optimistic and so indicative of the human spirit that it, it still gives me chills thinking about it today. He said to me, he goes, he goes, look, here's the deal, man. I, I love my life. He goes, I love my life. He says, my wife and I are so happy. I couldn't imagine wanting anything more out of life. Now that said, if Brandy didn't get cancer, we would be as happy as you could be. We would probably have a couple of kids and I would be living my best life, but that didn't happen right? But I am as happy as I could ever imagine being right now. He goes, I have no regrets for how I, what my current life is right now. It's the most wonderful thing ever. And I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, is that a human being that is inspirational, a guiding light for others? And it came out of such a a tragic situation, but he through Brandy's help was able to grow to a level of understanding about who he is and what love is and how he cares about himself and how he cares about others. And he, you know, he's just, I mean, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful thought. And so it gives me, uh, it gives me the ability to say to somebody, Hey, there could be better days ahead without sounding trite, sounding, you know, like, like an idiot, right? Mm -hmm. Because you couldn't have told Bobby that, when he and Brandy were going through what they were going through, but looking back, he knows absolutely there were better days ahead. Not, not the way he wanted it to go, right. It went the way it was going to go. And here he is. And he, and he's as happy as could be. How inspirational is that? 
So in the book, you had 15 stories. How did you find these people and what were some more of the stories? And the book, again, is called Cycle of Lives. Mm-hmm. And so how did you go about finding these stories? And uh, uh, yeah, every, every which way possible, because you got to imagine I couldn't just find 15 people who had been touched by cancer. I had to find 15 people who had been touched by cancer in a kind of a meaningful way who were all able to talk about it at a level that most people wouldn't and a level that they hadn't even talked about it. Right. And they had to have interesting stories that were about their lives before they encountered cancer, because I can't identify with somebody unless I understand kind of like who they are. Tell me a story about them. What's their emotional, make me like them, like in a, like a book, right? What, 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 we don't want the story. We, we want the character, right? We want it. We want to feel for the character. So when I talk to people, I want to know who are you? Like what, what, what's your makeup? And so, um, I might not be able to identify with your cancer, but I might be able to identify with the fact that you were abused as a child Mm -hmm. and that helped you develop some strength or some resiliency that then made you deal with a traumatic event such as cancer. I might be able to identify with that. So I Mm want to know because I might know what it's like to be an abused child. I might. And if, and if you and I have that in common and on what can I learn from you? right? What, what can I understand what you've gone through or what you might've gone through? We might have some commonality. So I had to find people whose stories were very interesting, who had experienced um, points in their life that gave them the tools needed to be able, or that prevented them from processing the emotional side of their journey. And so I call, I, and I cold called hospitals and cancer centers saying, here's what I'm doing. Do you have anybody that's interesting that you think I should talk to? I called friends to say, do you know anybody? Uh, my wife found a few people that, sh- that she had known. Um, I, I had one friend. I, I asked friends of friends. I, I just, I literally talked it up for a year or so until I found a collective of people And then I started talking to them and kind of whittled out the ones that weren't able to kind of go where we needed to go. Mm -hmm. Not everybody can, can talk about everything, which is totally understandable. You know, I called hospitals, like I said, you know, cancer centers, friends, friends of friends, family, you know, anybody I could talk to. I told about the project. And um, then I, I, I probably started off talking to a good 30 people or so. And, and some people understandably weren't able to go where we needed to go. Uh, some stories were repetitive. Some stories weren't um, as, 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 um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of like um, seminal. Like I wanted the stories to really be indicative of specific emotions. And um, what I didn't want to do, Jana, was I didn't want to be preachy and I didn't want to be prescriptive about the way people felt or the way people should feel or how they process their emotions or the way they should process. What I wanted to do was to find out from them how they were able to or why they were not able to process the emotional side from their own pers- from their own perspective. That's the question behind the question actually is what you're describing. Yeah. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to end up saying a story, Jana, where I say, and the moral of the story is just figure out out a way to get out of bed. Right. Just figure out a way to get, no, I didn't want to do that. 
I wanted to explain to somebody when they said to me something that was just unbelievably inspirational, like what I told you about Bobby, that that people could identify with that and they would believe it and they could be empowered with a little bit of knowledge and maybe a little bit of the language to be able to then take that to their own personal connections, their own personal interactions with people and really go a step further to make that deeper, more authentic connection. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. And I would love to hear another example or another story that stood out to you of the people that you spoke with. So I will give you a story that I, I, I really like telling because it's, it's such a wonderful thing. We always think about what people go through as, as patients or survivors or, or loved ones. We don't often get a really good chance to think about what people go through as caregivers. And um, one of the uh, book participants is a, 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 an oncologist. Uh, she specializes in breast cancer, uh, male and female breast cancer. Uh, Dr. Myers is the, is the oncologist and she, she uh, specializes in male and female breast cancer at, and uh, has been a pra practicing oncologist at NYU. And she's big in the recovery and wellness and longevity space as well. But her story is pretty awesome because what I wanted to do once I started finding out about her story is I wanted to bring another level of compassion and empathy to the, um, to the reader for what our caregivers might be going through, not our friends, but the professionals. And I think we can often lose sight of the fact that our doctors and nurses are going through things that are just as difficult as, as we are. And so her story involves uh, me explaining how uh, being abandoned by her dad when she was a little girl uh, never to be heard from again, kind of affected her journey in life. Right. And then what was really touching and, and really eye-opening for me was that when she started out as a, as a, a, a surgeon oncologist, she had a tough time building her practice. It was a time where women were not seen as uh, surgeons and oncologists. Um, uh, you know, in fact, one, one, one person, one doctor said to her, how can I refer you patients? You have curly hair. There's no way my, my patients want to see a doctor with curly hair, you know, and she's like, what? So she just went up against all the odds and became this specialist. And she was a little bit cold hearted about her advice. And she just gave her advice and, and uh, gave her care protocols to her clients, uh, to her patients, um, hoping that they would take her advice. And then she never really thought twice about it. And she moved on to the next patient and the next patient. Well, fast forward to 40 years later, and Dr. Myers had lived this beautiful life, wonderful marriage, grown daughter, had developed just this unbelievable um, uh, love of the life and the experiences that she had. And she became more desperate. She's, she's become more desperate for her patients to take her advice. And so she struggles at times with this idea that if people don't listen to her, if they don't follow her protocols, if they don't take her, uh, you know, for all of her wisdom and experience, that they might not be um, given what she was given this long, beautiful life with wonderful memories. And so she's desperate to say, no, 
your cancer is not going to go away if you get more sleep. It's not going to go away if you eat better. It's not going to go away because you want it to. And we'll check it. You check you out in six months. Like you have to, you have to take my advice. I'm good at what I do. And I'm not telling you because I'm an egomaniac. I'm not telling you because I think I know better. It's just breast cancer research has come so far that treatment protocols can enhance, potentially um, save you. It can enhance your life and potentially save you. And she's desperate to have them take her advice because she knows that they might miss out on the things that she's been given. And I love that idea. So when, when your doctor is telling you what to do, or when they're passionate about what you should do, or they're cl- they might even seem close-minded about what you should do, maybe perhaps they're sitting there wanting you to have the longest, best life that you can have. And they know that what they're saying to you might help with that. It's a wonderful idea. And she was so eloquent in the way that she uh, showed me that she doesn't just care for patients. She cares about them. And she's very eloquent and very passionate in the way that she explained that. And I hope I brought that to the story, uh, to her story, because it's one where I know that Every time I go see a doctor now, I have a very different approach with them. I, I, I treat them as people as well, not just as, as a doctor. What have you learned about yourself or what have you seen about yourself through their stories? Because I think we learn things about ourselves and other stories. And how do the stories carry with you today? Yeah, they, they definitely do with me. And I'm very fortunate for that because um you know, I mean, as you know, and your listeners know, when you talk about people, you kind of keep them alive. When you talk about memories, you keep those memories alive, right? That's what keeps friendships together, right? You talk about the things that you've done together and those memories make it seem like it's today. And, you know, that's what keeps us together. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. I think what I've learned is, is, uh, is a number of different things, right? I, I could probably give you a top 50 of things that I've learned. I'm not going to bore you with that, but I think the most, probably the most important thing that I've learned is that I probably was a lot quicker to come to the conclusion of the, what I thought people were going through or how I thought they might react to something. Um, when I have no idea, you know, we just don't know what people are going through. We don't know what they have gone through. Um, I, I might try and, and with, with a good intention, I might try to put myself in somebody else's shoes for a minute, but you can't do that. P- people have these remarkable lives. They, 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 we're just little passersby in their lives uh, and, and they're, they're super interesting and, and super meaningful. And all, I think all what I've learned is all I want to do is with the people I care about is to figure out how to make that connection deeper. And that to me is, um, is, is something that was given to me through this process that everybody talked about, everybody talked about one of two avenues. One avenue was the joy that they felt from the deeper connections that they formed with people and the regret they felt from the connections they weren't able to form at a deep enough level. That was it. And that was a very common theme the most common theme with each one of the book participants and everybody that I met along the way was the idea of joy over connections and regret over the connections that weren't made. And so um, I have gone uh, to be more, I've learned to be more purposeful 
and I've learned to in my in my interactions with people I care about. And I've also learned to not judge what somebody's going through, even if it's a compassionate judgment. Right. Even if I go, oh my gosh, you know, like oh wow, you know the uh, uh, they 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 are not asking me for help. They must be so strong. No, maybe they're not asking me for help because they think I'm the weakest person in the world and I'm going to abandon them. Right? Oh. I don't know. It's questions. You know, so I, Good I, questions are. Yeah. They provide yeah. that connection. I think they provide that uh, invitation for people mm-hmm. if if. Uh, they may not be able to vocalize or ask for help, or if they're not able to go to a deeper place. I think I've learned just extending myself without the expectation of what I'm going to get brings back things I might not have imagined or expected that give me different or better things than I initially set out for in the first place. That's really, really well said. And and that comes from uh, being humble and being um, reflective right? And being intentional in what you're trying to do. And those are hard places to be sometimes. They're really hard places to be because, you know, like one of the things I had learned in the last few years only, I'm no young dude. And I learned in the last few years, I used to think that if, if I accepted somebody's offer of help, then that was an admonition that I'm weak or that I'm not capable Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I've learned in the last couple of years, especially through this project and some other things that have happened, that asking for help is a sign of strength. It's right. also a sign of respect. If somebody offers to help you, they're saying to you, I, it will make me happy to do something for you. And if right. I say no, then I'm telling them at a certain level, I don't want them to be happy. I don't want them to be fulfilled. And that's very selfish. It's very selfish to, to not allow people to help you. And those are some of the, those are a few of the wonderful things I've learned. So where can people find your book and how can we get them connected to you? Sure. Well, that's always a good thing, buying books. Good <laughs> thing. Well, like I mentioned, the, the proceeds from the, from the book go to the, the Cancer to Focus charities and other charities that were chosen by the book participants. And as you know, your readers know, your listeners know, uh, most books are 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 bought on Amazon. So Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore. It was really cute. I, I did a uh, podcast for somebody in Ireland and I get this email from this gentleman and he goes, I've walked into three bookstores and they don't have your book. And I went, oh, okay, I'll send you one. But anywhere books are sold, except for maybe small little bookstores in Ireland, but uh, you can buy the book anywhere. And to learn about me, just go to cycleoflives.org or David you know, just look up David Richmond, you know, cycle of lives and, and it'll take you to what, you know, what we're doing and, you know, we're nonprofit supporting these organizations as well. And, and there's a lot of neat stories and a lot of ongoing content. So it's, it's all pretty exciting. Well, I'm happy that you have found a place in yourself to have conversations with others that are not always easy and can be challenging. And to me, that's where it starts having a conversation with yourself making room and creating Mm -hmm. conversations with others. Um, I believe I'm a firm believer. That's what I do. That's what I teach. And that's how I help people through their own writing and their own stories and collecting stories of other people and recognizing that there is so much you can't possibly imagine that comes from 
not just recognition of those stories, but by sharing them, right? Mm -hmm. Just by sharing them and who you're going to touch and how you're going to connect with somebody and whose day you might might make or whose life you could change. Yeah. Yeah. And allow them to change yours too, which is a which is a wonderful thing. You know, I'm still touched by some of the people that I met that I had a three minute or a five minute interaction with. Never and will our paths will never cross again. And yet, um, you know, the because we were both present and because we were both authentic and we had a real meaningful interaction with each other that, that those things will never leave you so to to allow people the ability to help guide you even if it's a total stranger that you just meet in a for one second passing by um if you try to connect and like you said before ask questions and listen um uh you never know what's going to happen it's, it's a really beautiful part of life it is. Well, I appreciate our conversation, David Richman and his book, Cycle of Lives. And uh, take a look, get uplifted, get his book, get connected, have a conversation with somebody you don't know. Exactly. Thanks, Jana. Thanks for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. If now's the time to unearth your story, or you just have to write that book, don't let fear or overwhelm stop you. Reach out. I'm here to help you achieve your creative writing dreams. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on this show, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. Hey, reach out. Find me at janalopez.com. Janalopez.com.